Tego, and welcome to Resistance Radio. I'm John Kane. I am your host, and I am once again happy to be here. We are streaming Facebook Live, uh, which we haven't done for a couple of weeks. I had some technical difficulties I had to get through, and I'm hoping this goes out all right. Um, look, you can, you can catch our show uh, as a podcast as well. So if for whatever reason you don't catch it on the radio on WBAI in New York City or WPFW in uh, in Washington, D.C., we put it up as a podcast. We're on all the major pl- podcast platforms. We do try to stream, live stream video of the of the program. And look, it's just me sitting in front of a camera, so it's not a whole lot to look at. But um, we do try to stream it, so it is uh, featured on Facebook as well. Um, and we try to have conversations that uh, that need to be had. And And I'm not saying that we don't plow some earth over and over again uh, from week to week. And part of that is because it's necessary to do so. But um, let me first start by saying, look, we are um, a a program that is carried on WBAI in New York City and um, on WPFW in Washington, D.C. So we we appreciate whatever support you can give to those stations and any other affiliate who happens to carry the show. I know a couple others do. if you're if you're listening in New York City, um, I ask that you that you go to the the pledge line 212-209-2950. We are doing kind of a special um, what we call a tower fund drive. We're trying to catch up on our tower fees. WBAI pays a little bit more for its transmission than the other Pacifica stations. We're all 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 the stations are in need, but WBAI sometimes is a, is in a little bit of a different situation. So we are trying to do what we call phase two of the tower fund drive. So if you uh, go to 212-209-2950, you can make a pledge uh, specifically for the, the Tower Fund. Do it in the name of this program, and uh, I would greatly appreciate it. You can also go online to give to WBAI.org and make a donation, one-time donation, time donation. You can become a sustaining member by becoming a WBAI buddy. Uh, and again, doing it in the name of this program. Look, even if you're already a buddy, even if you're making contributions and you can maybe add a few more dollars uh, per, you know, per month to that, then, uh, then by all means do so and, and don't be afraid to mention uh, that, you, that you're doing it partially in support of um, Resistance Radio. If you're listening in, in Washington, D.C. on WPFW, I ask that you go to that pledge line, which is 202-588-9739, or go online to WPFWFM.org, and the same thing goes. One time, you know, Time donation, one-time donation, um, donate when you can, whenever you can, uh, or become a sustaining member by uh, signing up to have a, a monthly uh, contribution made off of your credit card or your checking account or, or whatever. And, uh, and again, uh, we would greatly appreciate it. Um, look, I know that racism, you know, I'm, I'm broadcasting here from the Cattaraugus Territory of the Seneca Nation, just 30 miles away from Buffalo where the mass shooting back on May 14th occurred. And there's a lot of conversation about racism, but I'm troubled by some of the conversation. And not because I don't think such an, an atrocity like what took place where a, you know, a big 18-year-old man, I, mean, I, I got to call him a man because he's 18 and, and, he, and this is a big guy, <clears throat> buys a, uh, an assault rifle <clears throat> and goes drives 200 miles to, to Buffalo to, the, uh, to one of the black neighborhoods and shoots up um, a bunch of people, you know, killing 10 
10 uh, black people um, at, a, uh, at a supermarket. And look, that is a, it was a terrible thing to have happened. And it is the most extreme example of racism because this guy clearly was, was targeting black people. He said so in his, you know, whatever you want to call it, whatever the manifesto or just the stuff that he posted online. I mean, he tried to videotape and, uh, and stream what he was doing online. This guy was, was clearly not just a white supremacist, but, uh, but just an, an overt um, racist at the most extreme level. And I think it's important to respond to the, these kinds of uh, um, occurrences. And of course, the United States has mass shootings, you know, sometimes two a week. And it's, and it's I mean, it's, it's, it's sad, it's pathetic, but it's also something that lacks the real political will to do anything about. And when you combine these ideas of mass shootings and overt racism, that is allowed, and again, I'm going to say it, is allowed to breed and allowed to grow and fester, um, you realize that, that talking about racism only in the extremes is part of the problem. Look, it's easy to talk about a guy running people over with his car um, you know, at a rally you know, who, who's specifically trying to kill people that are protest, protesting for racial justice. It's easy to call that a racist act. It's easy to call you know, a, a, a kid who picks up a, a rifle and goes to a black neighborhood to shoot black people and call it a racist act. Those are easy to identify. And I've talked about this before, and I've got to talk about it again, because as much as we keep talking about the difference between people claiming not to be racist and being an anti-racist, we aren't putting a very fine point on what is considered racist. What is racism? You know, you know and, and racism isn't just the idea of, of hating somebody for um, having a different skin color. It's more than that. I mean, because it isn't, it isn't even, it's not only is it not just hate, it's not just skin color. <laughs> because you can, you can, you know, racism is, race is kind of a, a man-made construct anyway. So the idea that, that, that we have this perception of race and that, you know, that, that because people can vary in the way our appearances are, that we can also judge people by that appearance. That is, that's part of, part of the problem. But so, so what is it, what, what's the difference between, say, racial bias and racism? Well, the difference between racial bias, it's easy for people to have a bias towards people that look like them and maybe have a certain aversion to people who look different. And that is racial bias. And sometimes that racial bias is um, understandable, especially when you've got a country that's built on you know, 500 years of racism, of overt racism that involved everything from killing people to enslaving people to murdering people to, to lynching people to, to massacring people to committing genocide and, 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 and all, you know, all other walks of um, examples of, of racism. So you can have people of color who have an aversion to white people because white people were responsible for all of those things I just listed. But we, as people of color, don't have the power to, to change the systems, to affect how policy, governmental policy, corporate policy, social structures, we don't have, we don't have the power to change those things. So this is where the difference is. When, when we talk about racism being systemic, 
We also have to understand who controls the systems. People of color don't control those systems. Look, we, we have limited control. I mean, we can control our neighborhoods to some extent, to some extent. And we can be wary of outsiders. And, and, and every community can be like that. I, you know, look, I've, as I'm battling schools over things like the mascot issue, which I'll talk about a little bit later, um, we always get this idea, well, we don't want outsiders coming in and telling us what to do. Well, yeah, well, that's a little different than, than having a real fear that your lives are being threatened. You're not, not just your, your lifestyles or, or your views are threatened, but your lives are being threatened. So when, when you see, you know, look, they've got a neighborhood watch organization, so they can see if anything's suspicious. Well, if the only time you're suspicious is when somebody who looks different than you comes into your, looks different, not somebody you don't know, that's where you start, it starts to, you know, get on the wrong side of, uh, of understanding the difference between racial bias and racism. Racism is when you not only view somebody as different than you, but you, do, you view them inferior to you. And you create the systems that are always going to protect your position of supremacy, of superiority over other people. See, that's what we mean by systemic racism, and, or that it is systemic or that it's Im embedded in so many of the institutions of, of, of American life. Because white privilege is a thing. <laughs> I mean, it does exist. And even people who may not necessarily exploit it to the, to the fullest extent, that doesn't mean that they aren't enjoying some of the benefits of white privilege. And, and of course, for me, when I think about non-native and, and specific, specifically white allies, I, I want those white allies to use their white privilege to combat racism. And, and it doesn't make their white privilege go away, but they sometimes can be heard better. They, can, they, can be, they, they are more welcome into certain environments you know, for a time. <laughs> but the problem is when we talk about systemic racism, we don't realize that, that, that racism is embedded in law. This is the, this, this, all this fear about critical race theory. If you are against the concept of critical race theory, then you're a racist. Let, let's just call it what it is. If you oppose any analysis of the intersection of racism and law or, or policy or practices of your, of your country, of your society, then you're, then you're racist. You're just a racist because you don't even want to look at it. You don't even want to challenge the idea. We can debate it. We can debate. I mean, the, the question oftentimes is, well, is what I just did racist? I mean, is that racist? That's the question, right? Is, is it racist for me to, to, to touch your hair? Yes, it is. <laughs> to think you have the right, if you're a white person, and you think because you're white and you're not considered threatening because the default of safety is whiteness, and I've had I've had people do it, and and you know most of the time it's a woman you know who who would who would do it, but but it's not just a sexual thing because I've seen women do it to other women's hair as well. You know, black people experience it all the time. I don't I've never had a had a, a white guy want to touch my hair, but I've had white women want to do it all the time. They're wearing a ponytail, so oh you know, they grab me right by the ponytail and not grab me and and pull me, but. But, I'll, you know, like stroke my, my ponytail. It's like, why do you think you have the right to do that? You know, and it isn't just because they're a woman. It's because they're a white woman. 
is it racist to um to make certain assumptions about somebody about their athleticism? Yes. Or what? Or to even look at somebody? I mean, if if somebody tells me you don't look that native, that's a pretty racist comment to make. Because who are you to judge what a native person looks like? Now, look, you can make those judgments and, and keep them to yourself, but when you express that judgment out in the open like that, that becomes a racist act. Now, you can look at somebody and wonder, geez, I wonder if they're um, native or if they're, if they're Latina or Latinx or Hispanic or if they're, if they're Italian. You can, you can wonder these things, but when, when somebody asks you and you tell them, and then you want to debate it? Yeah, well, well how native are you? Well, I'm, I'm all native. That's my life. I live on native territory. My family's native. I, I, I mean, to me, that's a racist conversation to have. To, to tell somebody they don't look, in your view, that you get to judge. I mean, Donald Trump wants, you know, in a congressional hearing, well, they don't look native to me. They don't look Indi like Indians to me. Well, who the hell is he to judge that? And of course, there's an there's irony there because this is where the racism between Native people and Black people vary. I mean, for Black people, it was like the one drop rule. If there was any inkling that there was even a drop of Black blood in you, you could be the victim of racism as a re result of that. You would be judged a Black person just by having the slightest appearance of being uh, of being Black. Or if, or if it, de it was determined that somehow in your genealogy you had a great-grandparent or something like that. But for Native people, we get into this, 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 this blood quantum debate that if we're not genetically <laughs> tied to um, a specific people, a Native people, that we can be judged as not being Native enough. Our nativeness, our Indianness. It gets characterized. And, and of course, the idea of using blood quantum is a way to make, is to eliminate us. Oh, yeah, one of your parents is white, so that you're only half native. Well, and then now you're only quarter native if you, know, if you didn't have a, a, a native um, spouse or whatever else. And, and pretty soon you've got somebody down to a percentage that's, that's negligible. Now, you're still going to get plenty of white people who have that negligible amount of nativeness in their ancestry who will claim to be Native American, but that's not the same thing. Because they'll, they, don't, they don't care what they look at, blonde hair, blue eyes. They, they don't care about that. They say, well, I've got, uh, my great-grandmother was a Cherokee princess. And you know what? That's racist. Because for one thing, it's not true. You didn't bother to find out if it's true. And if you did some sort of 23andMe and saw a 1% uh, incidence of, of some sort of characterization of Native ancestry, that doesn't make you a Native person. And... So we get in, and, and I want to talk about some of the examples of, of what is racism and, and what demonstrates it. Because honestly, I think people don't know. I don't, I just don't, I don't think people know when, oftentimes they don't know when they're being racist. Now, when somebody does something that's racist and you tell them that it's, that, well, that's kind of racist. And then they dig in, now they're doing it knowingly. And, and this is where the mascot issue comes in. Look. There are many schools, thousands of schools across the United States that had native mascots. And most of the people who lived in this school environment with a native mascot were not the ones responsible for that mascot. It usually happened sometimes 40, 50, 60, 80 years ago. 
So they live with it. And they don't question it. And in fact, they embrace it. And, you know, and in fact, you, you, you get many of these white towns with names like Redskins or Warriors or, or, or whatever that um, really, really take ownership of it. And they claim it. They, they claim that, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm an Indian. I'm a warrior. I'm a savage. I'm a Redskin. And, and when you tell them, you know, that's not really appropriate. So when, when you challenge it, and then they get pissed, if they weren't racist in their appropriation of your identity in the first place, which they may not have been, because again, some of this is out of ignorance, but if they, if they weren't aware of the inappropriateness, but dig in after you tell them that it's inappropriate, now it's definitely racist. <laughs> that is racism. And so when I, when I hear white people say, well, it's not racist, we're, we're doing it to honor you. No, you're not. Because if I tell you that it's offensive and you continue to do it, then you're clearly not honoring anybody. And when you own, try to own it, and you know, we go through these phases. There's a great movie called um, Fighting Indians. It's about the Skowhegan uh, school in Maine, the last school in Maine to get rid of its uh, uh, native ma Indians mascot. And when you watch that film, you see the various stages you go through. First, they're going to deny that it's racist. And, you know, then, then, they're, then you, you get to this one area where a bunch of people claim, well, I'm, I've got Native American ancestry. My great-grandmother was this and my great-grandmother was that. And I don't find it offensive. So you displace all of the Native voices telling you that it's wrong with some people who want to claim to have uh, you know, some Native identity. Then you get to the next phase where you say, well, we weren't talking about you anyway. We're talking about the Indians, the, the real Indians, the ones that used to live here, not you. So we get erased every step along the way. You know, and, and, and so this is among one of the unique aspects of racism that Native people experience. Now, look, I don't mean to diminish at all what took place in Buffalo in, in, uh, on May 14th. And I want to be clear with that. But I'll tell you, when I hear a, a black politician tell a Native person who is raising issues related to the racism that we experience and says, don't you dare bring up racism after what took place, what happened to my people. For one thing, you're a politician. Those white people are your people too. You're not just a black, you're not just a politician for black people. That's not who elected you. And in fact, I'm sure if you break down the numbers, you had more white people vote for you than black people because more, there, there are more white people. So we get into this thing like, uh, you know, they, they call it um, um, oppression Olympics. It's like you think that your situation is the worst and that nobody else has a right to even use the word racism. We, we experienced the same thing with, um, with some of the Jewish community. Because when we... I clearly identify our our struggles over the over the the centuries as genocide and there's no question that that our fight to to maintain our existence has been a fight against genocide we have people in the Jewish community say oh no no you can't use that word and or if we call it the American Holocaust as many authors have many writers have done that oh no you can't use the word Holocaust that's ours and if you claim that you're um, the victims of the American Holocaust, you're denying ours. I've had Native people tell me that. 
I mean, folks like Suzanne Harjo, who, you know, who's so much pandering to Democrats, so much pandering to, to other people, that she won't even recognize what we've gone through as Native people. She actually denies, she, she denies that, that, that the, the word genocide even applies to what our experience has been. I mean, residential schools alone, if you didn't look at anything like the, the massacres, the, the, the land takeovers, the, you know, the um, scalping for bounties, uh, you know, all of these other, you know, laws that have been passed that are, that are overtly racist and all these other practices and policies of the United States. Residential schools all by itself represent all five of, of the items that, that qualify as genocide, killing people. Our, our children were killed in these schools. Um, physical, mental, sexual abuse, uh, um, all that harm, um, that's one of the qualifications. The other one is um, creating the, the conditions that would cause a people to cease to exist. That's, that's another condition. That's, that's what re residential schools were all about, to make us no longer exist. Kill the Indians, save the man. And of course, limiting childbirth. Many girls were, were sterilized during these, uh, in, in these, not only were, were we killed, but many women were sterilized. And the idea of motherhood and the teaching and the training and all that stuff that would have gone, been a part of our family life, that was eliminated. So you eliminate child, the ability to, to, to bear and raise children a couple of different ways, but not the least of which was, was sterilization. And of course, taking of our children. Those, those are the five definitions. So any one of those five define genocide. And yet we have to have a battle. We have to have an argument with somebody about whether we are the victims of a Holocaust, one that continues today. The doctrine of Christian discovery. There, is, there may not be a greater example of, of a racist policy that not only affected Native people, but it affected Black people too. Uh, slavery was built on this idea of the doctrine of Christian discovery. I mean, when the first of the papal bulls that was issued out of, uh, out of Rome by the Pope had more to do with Portugal going into um, Western Africa to take land, take property, take possessions, and take people and, and commit them to perpetual servitude. That's, that's what the Pope put in his papal bull, that they, had, they, that they not only had the right to do it, but they had the obligation to do it in the furtherance and the expansion of Christendom. That, that's what, that was the, the first of the papal bulls. Then they expanded into the Americas after Columbus's voyages. And so papal, papal bulls became the, the standard for taking anything that a Christian nation wanted to take from a non-Christian people and to dehumanize us, to, to murder us, to, to enslave us, all of that stuff. Now, the idea of, you know, of a 15th or 16th century um, uh, church dogma that comes out of, the Ro out of Rome may seem kind of irrelevant by today's standards, but it ain't. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the liberal darling of the Supreme Court, she cited the, the doctrine of Christian discovery in 2005 as, as grounds to eliminate uh, an Oneida land claim issue, one that they weren't even trying to take land, they had bought it. And they were trying to claim it as their own after they bought it. Claim it as Oneida land, not as, as New York State. And she argued, and she used the doctrine of Christian discovery as footnote number one in her, in, her, uh, uh, in her legal opinion. 
And it was a fairly, I don't know if it was a unanimous decision. It may have been. Because this is how embedded racism is into the legal system. Now, look, I would love to have a conversation within, um, between Native people and, and the black community so we could all identify the things that we experienced in our life that we can say, look, folk, white folks, that's racist. Because <laughs> I think some of it is that they just don't know. And part of it is, is, it, uh, is a, um, a, an ignorance of convenience, right? Or convenience of ignorance, I guess. Will, uh, uh, blissful ignorance, I guess. If you can pretend, well, that's just a law. Kathy Hochul, when she seized the accounts of the Seneca Nation to try to squeeze a payment that the Seneca still maintained she didn't have a right to, a right to, but she said she had the law on her side. And see, the law bolsters her side of the argument. Why? Because it's <laughs> of systemic racism. So when she uses a law, another law, to seize the accounts of, of the Seneca Nation to squeeze half a billion dollars out of uh, out of the Senecas, that's that's a, a that's actually a better example of the power of racism and the power of white supremacy than that that moron who went to Buffalo to kill people. Now that's a more ugly and heinous and uh, an atrocious act. There's no question about that. But he didn't have the systems other than the failures of the systems that allowed him to get a gun and that kind of stuff and whatever allowed him to, to develop into this racism, this racist. But he didn't have the law on his side. Not really. Not to kill people. Just, just a law on his side that enabled him to be in a position to do what he did. But there's plenty of racism. And racism isn't just a purview of the right. Republicans don't have a monopoly on racism. No, they don't. Racism isn't a right thing, it's a white thing. And I say it all the time, and I know I get people pissed off when I say it. And so I say it often. White people have the power to stop racist policies. Now, I'm, can we eliminate racism? I don't know. I don't know. It's too embedded in church. It's too embedded in law. It's too embedded in you know, in marketing and, cor and, and, and corporate stuff and culture, music. I mean, it's, it's so embedded. We may not el eliminate it, but we can take actions to address it. But if we can't even recognize it, lining up a bunch of children to, uh, to, to pledge allegiance to the flag, one nation under God, I'm sorry, that's racist. Because it isn't one nation under somebody's you know, a specific group of people's idea of what God is. The national anthem, read verse three of the Star Spangled Banner and tell me that's not racist. It is. And forcing and compelling people to, to stand and, and to do all this stuff, to, to do this ritualistic, patriotic stuff. Because I'll tell you, that line between patriotism and racism gets pretty blurry and it's, it's getting really blurry now. You know, and, and, and Donald Trump helped, helped stir that. But Democrats, trying not to, to look unpatriotic, they can do some of the same things. I mean, it's, 
it's important that we uh, that we recognize that that so many of the laws. Look, uh, I talked about residential schools. The Civilization Act, which was a law specifically geared towards changing Native people to eliminate us as Native people and to try to incorporate us and make us Americans, to make us a part of that culture, to force us, uh, to force assimilation. That's racist. And it's actually would be illegal according to international standards. 1924, when they passed the Indian Citizenship Act and declared us citizens, that's racist. You didn't offer, you didn't grant us the opportunity to become U.S. citizens. You just declared it. You took away our national identity and imposed yours in its place. Before the word genocide was even coined, the word denationalization was exactly what that was. The stripping away of, of a national character and the imposition of an, uh, to replace a national character. That's denationalization. Considered a war crime in 1913. The, the uh, Indian Reorganization Act, which was an effort to do a couple of things. One, to define us as subordinate to the United, United States. That's 10 years after the Citizenship Act. Now, 10 years after they, they declare that we're citizens, now they pass a law that says we're subordinate to them, that we are subjugated by the United States, and that we are defined as a tribe, band, or nation of Indians subordinate to the laws of the United States. But it also changed in a major effort to eliminate what they call traditional government and replace, us, replace all of those gov governments with tribal council governments that, that had written constitutions that were modeled after the United States. So to categorically and clearly, clearly change, alter, eliminate what was our traditional governance and replace it with something else, something that was modeled after the United States great experiment. And yes, that's racist. The Allotment Act. You know, the Allotment Act wasn't just the idea of taking all our native lands and dividing it up so each one of us had individually had land titles. No, it, it limited us to a certain number of acres. And sometimes that seems like a lot, two, 300 acres. But what was left over got sold off. It was a land grab. And even the allotment process was a land grab because now every individual could be targeted individually. They didn't have to try to get the nation. They could go after, they could loan somebody money, foreclose and take their property. That's what the allotment had, and it was racist. And of course, most of this stuff, if it were ever properly evaluated for its constitutionality, it would fail. They would be, they would be deemed illegal. Hey, when they tried to stop us from doing gaming, they went all, took it all the way to the Supreme Court, and, and, and the Supreme Court said, you know what? They can do gaming. So what's the United States do? They pass a law to change what native gaming is. The Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, one of the most racist laws that have been passed in modern times. And you know what? We abide by it. We follow it. Why? Because opposing the power of the United States is a very difficult thing to do. So we try to live our lives within this illusion that was created by the United States that we are just one of them. 
although we never agreed with it. We were never subjugated. See, and this is one of the, one of the differences between us as Native people and people who either were dragged here in chains like, like from Africa, African-Americans, or people who were enslaved, or people who come here from other countries, refugees. They're coming here to be a part of something. We didn't come here to be a part of the United States. And, and it doesn't mean that I, that I have to hate the United States or I have to hate everything about the United States. No, it's, it's not about that. But it's one thing for me to wear blue jeans, a t-shirt, and drive a car. It's another thing to say, you're ours now. And, you know, and I know some people, and some people feel, Native people feel very, very strongly. If you, you carry a wallet with U.S. currency in it, then, you're, then you're, 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 you bought into it. Well, I, I disagree. Our distinction is about how we identify ourselves. And how we identify ourselves is not up to Hollywood to decide or the mascot posted on the side of a, a, a you know, plaster on the side of a helmet, football helmet. We get to decide who we are. And if we reject being subjugated by the United States and being forced into U.S. citizenship, that doesn't make us a bad, it doesn't make us bad people. But you see, we're fighting for something different. We're fighting for our distinction. Many other oppressed people are fighting for equality within the system. And the problem is, some of that equality that, that they are fighting for, that everyone else is fighting for, requires taking something away from people, taking it away from white people, and affirming what was already taken from us. Frederick Douglass was, was an abolitionist. And, and spoke out strongly. And, and look, you did some great speeches. I mean, you know, coming up in, in less than a month, we'll, we'll hear, you know, uh, to a slave, what is the 4th of July? You know, one of his famous speeches. And it's powerful stuff. So it was, it was, that speech was given right here in Rochester, New York, you know, less than 100 miles away from here. But Frederick Douglass was all about manifest destiny. He wanted to take more Native lands. Why? For black people. I mean, on one hand, he boasted that, that, that the black man w found more comfort with the people with tomahawks than with the, the people with Bibles. I mean, it was one of, again, one of his, you know, I'm paraphrasing one of his quotes. But at the same time, he, he disavowed the savagery, the, the, you know, the primitiveness of Native people. And he thought we needed to be eliminated. I mean, the, the whole idea of, of, of um, former slaves getting, you know, I don't know, what it was, uh, 100 acres and a mule? Well, where the hell did you think the 100 acres is going to come from? So we see people who may be fighting for their special interests, but they won't, they won't take on the white people for it. And this is what I, that's, this is what I see with, with, with some of the black leadership. Crystal People Stokes in, in Buffalo, when she tells a Seneca Nation counselor, don't you dare bring up racism after what happened to my people. We're, we've been the victims of racism before your people, whoever you're claiming to be your people, Democrats, I don't know, were even dragged here. And we continue to be. Why? Because we could be dismissed 
not only not just by white people, but by by people of color who support white supremacy. I talked about that last week. And it's important that people understand that just because we're fighting for something a little different doesn't mean that that we don't have a lot of common ground with other people who are fighting, you know, fighting for their rights, fighting for freedom. I mean, see, we're fighting for real freedom. <laughs> we're trying to fight for freedom from the United States. Many other people are trying to fight for the freedom that white people have within the United States. I'm not trying to fight to be a white person. I mean, the reason I do a show called Resistance Radio is because our existence as Native people is the resistance. I know, it sounds like catchy. Our, our existence is our resistance. But, but it's true. We weren't supposed to be here. We were supposed to be, have been eliminated. The first attempt was to kill us all. And, and if it sounds more humanitarian to, to do forced assimilation and indoctrination and residential schools and all that stuff, let's be clear. It wasn't. It was, the, the reason for doing this was because it was cheaper. It was, ex, it's expensive to wage wars, even against Native people. Thomas Jefferson wanted to crush as much of the resistance as possible so there wouldn't be resistance. He wasn't necessarily saying kill us all because he thought that he could eliminate us by incorporating us. But he always said, let them raise their hatchet and we only have to crush our hands to destroy them. He's talking about us. He had all kinds of ways. He suggested in Indiana Territory that the good business people, white business people, should offer us lines of credit. Why? Because we had land and they had stuff. Well, convince us that we need their stuff. Offer us lines of credit and, and don't overcharge us. That's what Jefferson said. Don't overcharge them. Just make enough off of these guys to, you know, to you know, subsist. Because we'll get their land. Because once they get in enough debt, debt they can't pay, and it's your job to make sure that you run them in a, into a large enough debt so they can't pay. And then they'll lop off that debt with their land. And eventually we'll have them all surrounded. They'll either become us or they'll leave. Because if they, if they stay and try to resist, we'll destroy them. That's what, that was Thomas Jefferson. That's the enlightened one. He's the good president. Yeah, the good president who had slaves. Children with slaves. Raped slaves. I would love to have a conversation in fact, I, I sent an email to India Walton, who was the, uh, she, she won the Democratic primary for the governor, or I'm sorry, for the mayor of Buffalo. And the guy that she beat, who was the incumbent, then solicited all kinds of support from white people as a write-in candidate and, and ended up beating him. She, he didn't accept the outcome of the primary. I mean, we hear it all the time. I remember when Bernie Sanders was running, running for president, there was a lot of pressure. Said, well, if you don't get the Democratic primary nod, we don't want you running as an independent. And he had to commit to that. I you know, see the same thing in Seneca territory. Well, if you don't win in, in your party caucus, you can't run as an independent. Didn't stop Byron Brown from doing it. Why? Because white people wanted Byron Brown. Because Byron Brown 
accommodates white people. He accommodates the system. He endorses white supremacy in a way that keeps him in power. I'd love to have a conversation with India Walton because I think, I think we could have a, a, a real meaningful conversation about identifying what is racism. I mean, I, I think people need to understand examples of it because it's easy to identify a guy with, with a white hood on and a KKK, you know, white supremacy logos all over him or with, a, with a, an AR-15 running in to, to kill black people. That's easy to identify. What's harder to identify is the way a social studies teacher is teaching the subject or the way a coach talks to his athletes or the way a storekeeper discourages some clientele over other clientele. That's where it gets a little bit more difficult. What language is allowed to be used? Do we refer to people as a slave? Or do we refer to them as people who were enslaved? Are we going to identify them by what was done to them? Do we, tell, do we call a woman who was a victim of, of a rape? Do we just call her, you know, names based on, uh, do we, we just call her a rape victim forever? I mean, we have to have a different way of communicating. Because in the words that we use is where racism is fed. And, you know, I, I said it's fed in church. Look, the doctrine of Christian discovery was all about utilizing the church to validate oppressing people of color. I mean, when, when we talk about Christians, we forget that Christianity would, would have been born in, in, in the lands of, of people of color, but it became a white thing because the Christian nations of Europe embraced it and they built an empire out of it. They built monarchies that were all related. Look, they were all intermarrying with each other and everything else. That's, that's the systemic nature of racism. So when we hear the language that comes from, from some of these church pulpits, from the White House, and it doesn't matter if Barack Obama was the president, some of the things he said were, were very much in support of white supremacy too. I mean, he had the highest level of death by drones and deportations of, of any president before him or, or since then. I mean, he may not have, have been as vocal about his, his racist policies and beliefs. Because what happens is you find other ways of justifying it. I mean, everybody's talking about gun control, which there won't be any major gun control. Yeah, you might have to be 21 to buy your AR-15 after, you know, in New York State and a few other states. But this racist killing that took place in Buffalo is not adequately addressing racism. It, it just simply isn't. It isn't identifying the practices, the policies, and the laws that are racist. And look, I understand it, it's, it takes a lot to change laws. It's not an easy thing to do. But if you don't even identify, I mean, look, a lot of what, you know, what laws that were passed, see, there's a law 
Then there's the regulation, and then there's the policy. See, it, it's, there's three, the law just says that this is this. The regulation is how you're gonna do it. And the policy is the, is the third part of, of, of a law. It is what are you really gonna enforce? Where does discretion come in? How are you gonna interpret not just the law, but the regulations and who it applies to? See, you can have a law that on its books doesn't, doesn't have any racist language in it. You can even, when you break that law down into the regulations to enforce that law, you can still have language that doesn't sound racist. That's how you have redlining. That's how you have a GI Bill that doesn't get black people in, in homes after their military service. It doesn't say they can't. It's the policy. It's the practice. It's the implementation of the law. And then you got to prove it. You, you, you've got you to prove because the language isn't there. Hell, we've got laws on the books. Native people, we've got laws on the books that are specifically racist as hell. And you only have to look at the fact that, that we once were 100% of the population of, uh, you know, of, of these continents, and now we're less than 1%. Well, that didn't happen by accident. We weren't rewarded for having a nice place to live. The Hawaiian people weren't rewarded for, for giving up their paradise to the United States. They weren't rewarded. No, they live impoverished. It's because it's racist. And yeah, we can find through history the racist language. The politicians of newspaper publishers, cartoonists. We can find all that stuff. And then we could say, yeah, but that's in the past. The problem is it isn't. It isn't in the past. That stuff has legacy. We have a legacy of poverty amongst people of color, black people, native people in particular. And of course, native people, because we we fought to hang on to the pieces of land that we had. I mean, part of you know the the fight to push through these residential schools was because the people who believed that we needed to be assimilated were against the idea that we had our own land. That was that was abhorrent to all of U.S. leaders, Democrats and Republicans. Man, we never should have allowed them to live on reservations. We never should have put them on reservations. That's the language they actually said. Why? Because they want to say that that's why we're impoverished. That the other policies, that, you know, the taking of all the, the, our major land holdings, our resources, all of that stuff. The Osage were the richest people in the United States in the 1920s. They were also the victims of murder. 50 miles from, from the Tulsa massacre, a decade of death followed the, the, the Osage. Why? Because they did have resources. They had oil, they had money, and white men did everything in their power from, I mean, they actually married Native women, had children, killed their wives so they could take over the control of the, of the, the head rights and, and the, the royalties from, from oil. I mean, that was, that's not just a, a rare occurrence. There's a, there's a movie coming out called The Killers of the Flower Moon. I read the book, I, and I know the book details, but I hope the movie does. And most people don't even know about the Tulsa massacre or riots, as they call it, the Tulsa massacre, let alone the Osage murders. Why? 
because, the, because history is taught in a racist manner. These are the struggles that we have. School curricula is racist. Sports, even, even the way sporting you know, events, you know, uh, high school sporting events are, are, are done. You can find examples of racism, homophobia, abuse, you see, you hear it all the time. You know what these coaches have done to uh, to athletes because they're in positions of power. See, at its core, racism isn't just about racial bias. It's about power. It's about power over people. The idea that New York State believed that it could squeeze almost fifty percent, for the most part, fifty percent of the revenue of gaming. Dollars from the Senecas, the fact that they believe they had that right is because they have the power to make that happen. They don't have the law to support it. They don't. They don't need the law to support it. The entire system, including the lawyers that represent the Seneca Nation, they're all white. They're all part of that system of white supremacy. So, what do you think their advice looks like? Give as much up as you as you're willing to get what you want. In the meantime, you're busting your ass to generate money for your people the whole time New York State is taking money out of the till and competing against you at the same time. Why? Because it's a racist system. But, and when, when I have black people say, don't you dare call it racism after what happened to my people. What? You can't, you can't acknowledge that we both live in a world where, where we have a legacy and a history of racism and racial violence against our people? You're going to tell me don't, don't, don't dare bring up racism? Well, I'll tell you what, <laughs> Crystal Stokes, don't you dare bring up that shooting in Buffalo. Don't you dare bring it up to me. If you can't acknowledge that we have shared some much of this oppression. I'm not competing against you. I'm not competing in the oppression Olympics. But if you can't identify racism when it's, when it's being perpetrated against somebody else, then you're part of the problem. Why? Because if you won't acknowledge it, if you won't recognize it, recognize it, then you are supporting white supremacy. You're not just complicit. You are actively engaged in promoting the system. Yeah. No, that, that's the problem, folks. That's the problem. We, if we can't have a meaningful conversation about what is racism and what are the examples of it, the much lauded code talkers, Navajo, Mohawk, Choctaw, I mean, there were, I think, nine different native languages that were used for, for code talking. You know what? Racist as hell. What do you mean it was racist? You guys were heroes. No, they weren't. They were exploited. That policy, which may not be written anywhere, <laughs> said that if a code talker on the battlefield was at risk of being caught, he was to be killed. He, they, he, had, he had people that whose job it was to kill them rather than allow them to be caught.
because the code was more valuable than that than that person that it was that they used used for that code. And you know what? Yes, that's racist. The fact that our languages were destroyed for centuries, including through residential schools, only to be exploited for military purposes, and the language would be continue to be destroyed while during and after that. Why? Because it made the code more secure. Fewer people who know that language, the fewer people there are, there are to, to give it up. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't think that we're adequately addressing racism. And now there's going to be a lot of distraction because of, you know, the January 6th hearings and that kind of stuff and the, the, the next election cycle. And while Buffalo's still reeling from this tragedy that, that came, came to town for them, I'm hearing the conversations and they are not adequately addressing what is racism. We need to have the conversation. And, I, you know, maybe we need a chalkboard and crayons. I don't know. Maybe we need to really demonstrate and to explain and not argue. Look, if you're white and I tell you something that you're doing or something that somebody else is doing is racist, you are not in a position to argue with me. You arguing with me whether a, a practice is, is racist or, or offensive is racist and offensive. Look, I want to thank you and for, for listening to the program. Um, this is a subject that I got to keep talking about because I don't think it's being properly addressed. And we can't have these conversations about racism in a vacuum. We have to have other voices, voices like ours. If we're not a part of the conversation, then you're missing a lot about what qualifies as racism or not. I want to thank you for listening. I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio.